Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you so much for being here, especially last minute since we only uh, put this up a week ago, trying to adapt to our our uh, the chaos of this moment and um, continuing to be in community, continuing to learn from each other um, and to learn from uh, a scholar um, who um, it not only has a rabbinic background, but a legal background and an uh, ethics background and lives in Israel and has children of age of service in, in Israel. Um, and so today's session is on Jewish military ethics, a comparison of being a soldier in the diaspora and the Israeli army t- uh, today. Alex is also going to share in the chat um, um, the class that Rabbi Per is going to give next week. He's going to offer another week, uh, excuse me, another class next week. Um, so I'm sure he'll let you know at the end of today or beginning of today what well, how that'll be a little different. Part two of that session. Um as usual, we'll have the chance for a sheer, meaning a kind of a frontal presentation of ideas, um, followed by some dialogue and conversation, um, all of us here together. And um, um, and of course, you can always write in the chat between now and then. Rabbi Chaim Ian Pear is a rabbi and a lawyer and social activist living in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem in Israel. Is the founder of Shir Hadash, a popular Jerusalem-based synagogue, educational institute, and community center, as well as an expert in Israeli and Jewish environmental law. He worked at Israel's premier environmental law firm, Master and Goldman, and a leader in the spiritual diplomacy efforts made on behalf of Israel. A one-time aspiring stand-up comedian, Rabbi Peir received his ordination from Yeshiva University and holds law degrees from Hebrew University. LLM with a focus on Mishpat Ivri and NYU School of Law, JD with a concentration in international law and a degree in international law, politics and security from Georgetown University's School for Foreign Service. The author of three books, he's married to Dr. Rachel Pear and is the father of five children. And for those of you who are in Phoenix, Arizona, um, you may know Rabbi Pear from growing up here. You may also know from the JCC that is named after his late father of blessed memory, who was a regular uh, attendee at, uh, at Valley Bay Madrash. So with that, Jewish military ethics, Rabbi Peir, thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you very much, Rav Shmuley, and, and thank you for all, all of you for joining with me today. Uh, it's nice to see some familiar names and faces. Um, I'm going to begin with a story that hopefully will frame uh, both the talk today as well as next week, because they they really are uh, similar in uh, framework, although very different in terms of content and style. So the story actually feels like uh, a lifetime ago, but it was October seventh, uh, which was Simchat Torah and Shabbat in 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 Jerusalem, uh, and at my synagogue we had a nice full crowd Shabbat morning, um, and. As soon as we began, actually, before we began, you know, the sirens, uh, you hear them whenever there is a rocket fired uh, in the vicinity of where you're located. Uh, the sirens had already gone off at 8 a.m. Uh, before Shul had started. 
and then they began and they continued uh, throughout the, the davening. And we had already started uh, our services. So we, in the very beginning, when there was one or two, uh, simply we interrupted our services for a little bit. We walked a little bit to our bomb shelter, which is in our synagogue. Uh, and uh, we continued the services. And this went on then for about uh, uh, three hours, maybe. You know, Simchat Torah is usually a very long service. Uh, we cut certain things short. We knew obviously there was something going on, uh, but we didn't have uh, we didn't have phones, we didn't have access to computers or anything like that. There were rumors uh, that had uh, that had uh, sort of percolated through the uh, community of some things going on, but by and large. All we knew about was there were missiles coming in and we had the sirens and um, was somewhat of an eerie experience. As we were davening, we would do uh, some of our hakafota dancing inside the bomb shelter to come back out. Some people were even standing, looking, seeing the missiles fired overhead and being knocked down by the Iron Dome. At the end of the service, you know, we we decided to have our regular kiddush. It was a it was a a big service, and so we had a very nice, elaborate, at least by Israel standards, kiddush. It was a dairy kiddush, uh, you know, bagels and lasagna, plant parmesan, and uh, there was a guest visiting from Los Angeles, and uh, I said to him, "Wow, I guess this uh, is something you don't see every day in Los Angeles." Of course, I was referring to the, the service of six or seven times having to run to the bomb shelter during davening, uh, to which he said, you're right, I, I've never experienced this. We would never have a dairy kiddish in Los Angeles. Um, and when he said that, of course, everyone around was a little, somewhat taken back by uh, taken back by that. But he then realized what I was referring to of the uniqueness of the experience of having missiles fired at you while davening. Um, and, uh, you know, and he, he caught himself back on that. But but it struck me the different experiences that sometimes you have based upon the locations in which uh, you grow up in or you're accustomed to. And, and there's no doubt about it that when it comes to military service, that is one, I think, the, the most unique experiences for a Jew uh, living in Israel as opposed to outside of the land of Israel. Very few American Jews, of course, serve in the U.S. military. The truth be told, very few Americans serve in the U.S. military. It's only about a one to two percent uh, of families that regularly serve in the U.S. military. And in Israel, of course, it's the exact opposite. A almost every family is connected uh, to the military. And therefore, it's a very different, a very different experience in that regard. And, and that's the framework that I want to talk about both today and next time we meet. The, the, the differences of 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 army service today i'm going to talk about the individual experience if you are a were a jew uh living almost any time over the last you know 2000 years in the diaspora uh and you had to be in the military what would that experience be compared to the experience today for a typical jew in the israeli army next week uh i'm going to talk about sort of institutionally how the Israeli army, and particularly the question of how it developed its, its, uh, its framework of military ethics, uh, we're going to look at the rabbis who were involved in trying to influence what would be the military ethic policies within the Israeli army, how that compares to other armies around the world. But the first one, the first class, as I said, we're going to focus on the individual experience. And we're going to do a little bit of history and literature uh, to uh, flesh out this point. The, the first thing that I want to read to you 
um, is something that I imagine many of our our grandparents, our great grandparents, perhaps even our parents, had the experience of in Europe, and that was serving in, you know, not by choice. Most likely, if you're from Eastern Europe, if you were from the Austria-Hungary Empire, if you were from Russia, uh, Tsar's army, Poland, um, if that's where your Galicia, if you're where your ancestors hail from, it's very likely that they may have had at some point in time had to serve in in the army of the Tsar or the army of the Polish king or the emperor in one form or the other. And what was that experience like for them? Before we can get to the experience in Israel, I want to I want to lay the groundwork of what it was for our ancestors um, in 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 Europe, for mo- many of our ancestors, at least in Europe. So the very first source, it's all Hebrew, but I'm going to read translate and summarize so you have nothing to worry about if anyone has a question please by all means feel free to interrupt me and i'll do my best to explain a little bit more uh in depth the first is from uh the nobel uh winning uh laureate uh shy known he wrote of course many many books i think he won the nobel prize in the late 1960s and he had a book in mind for many many years which was the history of his town. Uh, he grew up in a small town in Galicia. He created a, a series of stories, uh, things that he had heard growing up about uh, his town. And he jotted them down and he never got to actually publish this book, but he he told his daughter exactly how he wanted it to be written, um, the order of the various stories. And it came out to be published, I think he passed away in 1970, shortly after that. Um, and it was it was published, I think it was 700 and something pages of all these vignettes of, of, of what life was like in those towns. And so he's telling one story of what it was like when the draft boards would come. Draft boards would come uh, sent from the the king or sent from uh, the tsar, sent from, at some point in time, the Bolsheviks. And they'd say, okay, you Jews, uh, they'd come to a, you know, shtetl and they'd say, you Jews have to provide for us a certain number of uh, conscripts. Uh, so that's where you see, this is in his literary story in the very beginning. So the Chen Gazra Machut, so the, the kingdom would declare or require that every community had to give a certain number of Jews to the army, to serve in the army. So this is how they would do it. They would, uh, they would order the various communities. They would appoint the heads of those communities. You must now go and find us. The first stage of what they would do is they would offer money and they'd say, who wants to go serve in the army? Uh, you'll get paid for it and we'll pay you as well to start helping to fill our our quota. And there were people who, for whatever reason, might decide to join. It was a dangerous thing on many levels, which we'll see in a little bit, to join the army. It was, of course, dangerous uh, physically, but it was also dangerous, dangerous spiritually. And many of these religious communities did not want to send their children to the army because it meant they were lost forever uh, to Judaism. Um, I happen to have a great great grandfather, maybe it's great great. I'm not great great. I'm not sure. Um, by the name of Yisrael David Palestine, he, he he took on himself the name, presumably Palestine. You know, Jews didn't have last names. At some point in time, they were asked to choose a name, and he chose the name Palestine, which eventually then became Polstein. Um, and that goes down to my father's uh, 
grandmother on my on his father's side. Uh, so he was in the army for 25 years. You're taken away, and he served for some 25 years uh, in the Russian army. The problem is, very often, there were not enough volunteers who were willing to do it for pay. And so then you had to forcibly take people. And Shagnon describes this process. Um, so the third line after the period says, Parnasim, these leaders, they would pay or rent out Jews with money to bring them to the, uh, the draft board. But if that didn't work, in the fourth line after the period, but if they did not find enough people, who could not be convinced by uh, just the, the monetary compensation, uh, these people were forcibly taken by the Jewish community and given over to the Rashut, given over to the, the non-Jewish authority. They were basically against their will, taken by the by the by the army. And he goes on to describe how in households throughout Jewish communities, there would be people weeping, weeping and weeping and weeping. In one house, if you look at the sixth line in the middle of the page, in one house, they would be crying uh, that was on the son that was taken away from them. Um, in another house, there would be a woman who'd be crying on her husband who was taken away from taken away from her. And there was great sadness and there was great pain throughout all of these communities. People were taken away in this time when the draft board would come, you know, once a year. It was a terrible, terrible, tragic time. Uh, Shai known very poignantly then uh, offers a little bit of uh, religious critique. He says, what did the Gdole Hador, the great rabbinic leaders of the time, do about all this? In particular, one of the policies was they would take specifically from the poor, right, because the poor had less power. And so they would often, the leaders of the community would take children, poor people who couldn't bribe themselves out of it, or children who had not learned any Torah, who did not have the protection of the organized religious community. And they would throw those, those individuals to have to join the army right away. And so there were some Gdole Torah, some great Torah scholars who said, okay, you know what? That's that makes sense. What else can you do? You, you, it's best to keep those who are most committed inside the community. There were other Gedolei Hador. There are other great rabbinic scholars who found this absolutely the worst thing they could possibly imagine. It was terrible. And the last two lines of uh, Shai Gnon, he describes how there were some rabbis, uh, for example, the great one Gaon Reb Nushulam. He was so disgusted by this, he moved from Galicia. He moved from the center of Torah in Eastern Europe, and he moved to a city where there's no Torah whatsoever, but there was also no draft boards. And so therefore he felt that was a much holier place than to be in the same place where such crimes against uh, young young men took place of throwing them into the army. And if you look not just at Chai Gnon, but there's something called Yisker books. Yisker books were uh, became very popular after the Holocaust, where people would try to write down everything they could remember that took place in different small communities that had now been wiped out during the Holocaust, and they would recall stories that they had heard. And one of the things that is repeated again and again and again is the visit of the draft boards and how people would try their best to get out of it. You know, there were stories of uh, of young men who would stay up for months 
before the draft boards come, trying to make sure that they would look tired and weak. Um, and uh, they would do all these different things. You know, they'd stay up in the middle of the night singing all night together so that when the draft board comes, they would think that they were weak and sick and they wouldn't take them. Uh, developed from that a, a custom also of many of these young men sort of doing high pranks in the middle of the night. And there's lots of stories about how they would go and they would, you know, steal people's goats and put them in other people's homes, or they would take the, 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 the wood from wealthy people and give them to poor people and other things along those lines. Uh, very seldom do these things work. The only things that seem to work, and unfortunately we have histories of this as well, uh, is if people maimed themselves. Some people would poke out an eye. Some people would cut off, you know, fingers to get out of going uh, to the army. It was considered such a terrible thing that one would have to do. That's the the background of what the experience might have looked like. Uh, and I just want to pick up on one of the things Shaigno mentioned, which is sort of the danger this was from a religious point of view. If you look at the second source, there was a book written by the Chafetz Chaim. The Chafetz Chaim, uh, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan, who is most famously known for writing a book, the Chafetz Chaim, uh, which is all of the laws of uh, not speaking ill of other people. This was what he became most famous for. But when he was still quite young, he wrote a book of what it was like and what were the laws when you would go into the army. If you were a Jew and you were taken away for these 25 years, what are your responsibilities? What are you supposed to, uh, you know, how do you how do you stay connected to the Jewish community? What what are you supposed to do? And and he gives his advice. He gives his suggestion. He actually is fairly strict. He does not make uh, many exceptions. He says, for example, uh, you know, if you're in the army and and the only food that they're offering is you know non kosher meats, he says. You do your best not to eat it. Uh, you you don't say that it's a matter of pikuach nefesh, of saving your life. Um, because usually it's not. Usually you could find enough other stuff and still survive. Uh, he doesn't have a tremendous amount of sympathy. And part of his argument is it's very important for these soldiers when they would go in to psychologically feel that they're still very much part of the Jewish community. That they, for, for their own sense of uh, humanity, and dignity, he wanted to give them a purpose. Um, and so he wanted them to try to keep the commandments as much as they could. He also writes about in the, the second paragraph here about how when people would come to uh, home from the army for a little bit, you know, they wouldn't go to services. They Or if they go, they talk during services. And he was very strict with them. He says, no, again, it's important for you to feel that you're connected to the community. It's important for you to feel that you're connected to God. And to whatever extent you can, you should keep Shabbat as much as possible. You should keep Kashrut as much as possible. You should learn Torah as much as possible. It will it, People will come to respect it even if you, they, they mock you. He says, you're going to be mocked in the army for the, you know, sitting in a sukkah and shaking a lulav and eating kosher and keeping Shabbat. Trust me, you'll be mocked. But you also achieve a, a bearing respect by sticking to your values, and it's going to help you in the long run. It's going to help you feel like a mensch, because an army, to a certain extent, tries to destroy your sense of individuality and destroy uh, your sense, sense of, of mensch. Okay, you're asked to do such terrible things, and the 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 laws will try to uh keep you close and so he says 
whenever possible, you should do your, your absolute best to maintain whatever you can maintain, even if it's a small amount. He says, for example, it may be on Shabbat that you have to violate Shabbat by, let's say, you know, being a gunner for 23 straight, straight hours. And you do that because that's the law. You have to follow the, the commandments when you're in the army. You have to follow them. However, the second you're not being commanded to do that which is violating Shabbat, you shouldn't violate Shabbat. Yeah, lighting a match then, even one little match, even if, the, if you've just been firing for 23 straight hours, you should do your best to maintain the Kedusha of whatever little amount of Kedusha of holiness you can maintain. This, by the way, just before we move on, I, I want to take a quick aside. Um, and share with you some, I guess, experience or insights from the past month or so here in Israel. Because what the Chafetz Chaim is basically saying is, even when you're in a in a terrible position, even when you're in a position where it's not ideal and when you cannot achieve your ultimate goals, that doesn't mean you give up on everything. You do your best to try to maintain at least some degree, whatever degree of, of sanity, of appreciation of holiness of ethics that you can um and and i think that's one of the things that israel has as israelis have have struggled and attempted to do over this last period of time i can tell you that on the day of uh, october 7th and certainly the first week everyone was walking around in complete shock uh you know there is a air of depression that people just walked around and and disbelief um however little by little i think we are able to dispel some of that even as great sadness remains and uh, one of the insights that i draw from is a teaching of rav cook rav cook um uh rav cook said something uh i think very very profound he was actually talking about the verse we say in the evening prayers um the verse says uh, by the way, Alex, if you want, you can put this down. We'll we'll come back to it in just uh, about five minutes. Um, the verse says something very fascinating. Um, it says, we ask God to spread over us a sukkah shalom, a sukkah of peace. And Rav Kook, you know, it starts off by saying a sukkah is four walls. That's the halacha. However, very quickly... Uh, the rabbis make exceptions to that. They say it doesn't have to really be four walls. It could be three walls. And then it doesn't even have to be three walls, just two walls and a little bit more of the third wall. And then that's a kosher sukkah. And then there are these other exceptions that could be made. You know, for example, if you have poles that are, are relatively close to one another, um, like a, a fence, uh, you know, something like this, we count that as a wall as well. So pretty shortly, and there's other exceptions as well, you can create a kosher sukkah, which which what appears doesn't look like any walls, maybe just a little bit of one wall complete or anything like that. And, and Rav Cook says what the sukkah is trying to teach us is you can still be kosher, even if you're not hitting the idealized uh, the idealized goals or the idealized formats. And he says that's what's true about peace as well. You know, even when you don't have the messianic vision of peace, the idealized vision of peace, you know, sitting under the, the 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 fig tree and everyone at peace with one another. But if you have just small pieces of peace, this is a language used by Rabbi Norman Lamb. If you have pieces of peace, you have you should learn to appreciate that in the same way we learn to appreciate a sukkah. And and we celebrate even those 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 moments. Um 
There is a midrash that says peace is so important that even during war you need to have peace. And when you first see that midrash, it seems like so out of context. Like how can you have peace in the midst of war? But I think this is what the midrash is getting at, which is to say, even in the midst of war, you have to look and count your blessings for whatever you have, even if they're only small amounts. So I certainly felt that um, during the, the the last month or so. I, 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 There's many things that we could talk about. Um, there were our soldiers for a moment. I just mentioned, you know, uh, on the day this took place, when people found out what was going on, you had these young kids, 20-year-olds, 22-year-olds, who were off. And they instantly just got in their cars. They found their own guns. And they rode down. They they got in their cars and they drove down without even knowing what was what was there to meet them, and they just ran into danger. Um, the logical thing, of course, to do is run from danger. But these kids were running to danger. You know, all the planes were filled with Israelis who wanted to come back um, to to Israel. You see it with uh, American Jews as well, who are now coming flow after flow, running into danger as opposed to away from away from danger and i and i think of the you know young kids uh Roshmul mentioned i have three kids of military age. i have a daughter who's in Miloim reserve duty now the other one um just finished her army service at a base called zikim zikim if you want to see really a harrowing story uh you probably have to write a little bit in hebrew but if you look up zikim they did a uh, a news story about what took place there on the morning of October 7th. Um, she was released from the army about two weeks before this all took place. So she wasn't there, but a lot of her friends were there. And, um, and it's an amazing story. It's, it's a training base. So almost everyone there on this base had just joined the army. In other words, they had no skills or training whatsoever for what was about to take place. Um, and there are about 10 commanders, 10 people who have been in the army already who are going to train them. And the, the trainees were at the various um, lookout points, you know, where you do guard duty on the morning of when all of a sudden these missiles are being fired. And uh, and the commander who was there, who's a 23-year-old, had this idea. He says, you know what? These kids, no one had an idea yet they were going to be attacked by terrorists. And this 23-year-old commander says, you know what? I bet these kids who just started service are terrified, even though it's just missiles, just missiles. You know, my daughter who is on that base, I used to ask her, you know, wherever you are in Israel, if the siren goes off, you know exactly from Gaza. You know, in Stay Rote, you have 10 seconds. Uh, so I asked her, I said, how much time do you have from hearing the alarm before you have to get into a bomb shelter? She says, we don't have alarms. We only know you're supposed to get into a bomb shelter after the first missile hits. Once that first missile hits, then you know you have to run to a bomb shelter because it's just so close to Gaza. It's a kilometer away. And so the commander says, these kids who are doing guard duty are going to be nervous. So he called all of the commanders, 22 and 23-year-olds instead of 18 and 19-year-olds. And he, he says, let us replace them. And they stood at the lookouts. And it was an incredibly fateful decision because right after all those missiles came and they made the switch, they saw about 50 terrorists coming from the water to their base and surrounding their base from the other side as well. And these 10 commanders, because they had training, were able to hold them off. Um, if, the, if the trainees were there, it would have been a totally different story. And these commanders told when they started seeing the terrorists come in, 
that the trainees should get to the shelters and they would do their best. And seven of them ended up dying. Um, but they they would not let the trainees out. They said, stay where you are, stay, because it's too dangerous. And so you have these 20-year-olds trying to save the lives of 20-year-olds. And, and I just think about how, how amazing it is that the children we're raising here run into danger, uh, run into help, run into risk their lives uh, rather than, than run away. And there are similar stories like that um, all up and down the entire country. It doesn't need to be in the military, but there are individuals who went, you know, there was one guy who was a farmer who heard, you know, the gunshots. He drove his pickup truck to save some of the kids who were being gunned down while they're being shot. And he took five or six or seven kids in his pickup truck and he drove them out nine kilometers away. And then he went back in and he did this something like 15 times, bringing out in and out, saved 120 people's kids lives, even as he was being shot at. Again, there are these pieces of peace. There are some things that give us comfort that more people were saved because of the, the courage of, of individuals. And in the, uh, the, the civic uh, world, the same thing. There are people who are volunteering. Like I, I run a, a volunteer group of about a thousand people. I send out each day notices of volunteer opportunities of how you can help uh, refugees from the Southern towns uh, or help soldiers get things they need or cook for families whose so, whose husbands and fathers are now on reserve duty. So the mother is all alone with, you know, three or four kids. You can go and babysit. And you. And I will tell you, I, I send out these announcements. I send out about 10 different opportunities and I get called within a half hour asking for more because all the opportunities have already been taken. Um, it's an amazing thing uh, to see. In fact, there's a wonderful story. There was this one young woman who was going into the supermarket who was collecting, um, this is very common, who was collecting food uh, for people. When I say it's common, you walk in Israel today in, in the supermarkets, there are always teenagers walking up and down saying we're collecting for soldiers, we're collecting for uh, refugees, one thing or the other. And so this woman asked the, the woman who's standing outside the supermarket collecting food, who are you collecting for? And she said, uh, you know, I don't know. And this woman who was asked, you know, thought that was pretty odd what, that a woman wouldn't know who she's collecting for. It seemed very strange. But she went into the supermarket. She bought a chicken anyway. She said, what does it matter? Uh, I'll give her the chicken anyway. And she gives her the chicken and they start talking. And the woman who's collecting food says, you don't, you don't know who I am really, do you? And uh, she says, no. And they started talking more. And she said, you know, one my kid, one of my kids was kidnapped and is in Gaza now. And I'll tell you, I, I don't know who I'm collecting for because I don't know who to give the chicken to or the food that I'm collecting to. But I just know that I have to do something I have to give because otherwise I would be home and the 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 cycle of grief would not allow me to escape. I would be imprisoned by it. The cycle of anger, um, you know, when you when you're angry and you're righteous about your anger, it consumes you. You don't have you don't want to give it up just as you don't want to give up grief because you feel like maybe you're giving up something of someone you love. And she said, the only way I could break free is if I found a way to give. I don't know who to give, but I just know I have to give. And you see this across the society. You also see the tremendous amount of, of unity. Um, you know, <laughs> a day before this happened, everyone was at each other's throats. There is a, uh, you know, there's a comedy show 
And one of the things, one of the first skits that came out within the first week or so, when everyone went into reserve duty, the the people who are pro the judicial reform, people anti the judicial reform, and everyone's going in, and the the skit has the one of the commanders standing by the bus with her her notepad saying, "Okay, who's getting on the bus now?" And she starts calling them, and it's as I say, it's a comedy skit. So she says, "You know, all the fascists, because that's what people were being called. They were being called fascists. All the fascists on the bus now. All the messianics, right? That's what people were being called as well on the bus." All the leftists, all of the uh, the traitors. These were the terms that were being thrown and thrown about of people from different sides. And she goes through everything, all the terrible names that everyone was calling one another, and they all get on the bus together. And you see these pictures now uh, in the South of of people who were at opposite ends of the political spectrum, who, who were opposite protests, and they are all together, you know, in the same tank, and they feel a sense of unity together and the country feels that same way. And I would just say that that's this idea of that, that even at these difficult moments to find pieces of peace, find small things to to appreciate, even in the, the midst of great darkness. And I think that's one of the points that the Chafetz Chaim was trying to get at is that even when you're going to the army and it's a terrible situation and you're going to likely to lose your, your Judaism, nevertheless, try to maintain some type of integrity. But he goes on. Um, and he describes how the experience in the army is not just bad spiritually, but it's also dangerous physically. Um, he goes on to say, for example, uh, if you want to just bring up the the, the source sheet again, um, after this line uh, that's in the paper, which says, It's a known thing for those that go out to war. Because it is dangerous. For that reason, you should you should ask forgiveness to every person who you have sinned, every person you have relationships with, because you don't know if you're coming back. You should write a will. It's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, it's also a dangerous thing not to do if you're in the Jewish community. The next source just below that, which is a halakhic source, says know that you have to go out to war if you're called upon by, because the truth is, if we don't go out to war in these communities, then when we come home or if we stay and we don't join the countries in which we are guests in, the people will become, if you look at the second line of that source uh, from the Mishnah Rura, uh, there's a fear, that perhaps the residents of the land will become angry at us and they'll then try to kill us anyway for not joining the, the army. So he's, it's, you, you, it's a no-win situation. It's a terrible situation. And the next source I think even elevates how terrible the situation is even even a little bit more. This is the source you see. Uh, for those of you who read Hebrew, it says, Boi Haruach. This is the name of a book uh, written by Rav Chaim Sabato. And in it, he describes actually a Sephardic Jew um, who meets in Israel for the first time uh, an Ashkenazi Jew and learns about... Uh, the European Jewish experience. He had no idea. You know, he grew up in Egypt. Uh, he he had a totally different uh, uh, Jewish experience. And so he's learning from this individual he meets about four periods in uh, European Jewish history. World War One, World War Two, the Holocaust, coming to Israel, um, and then the early wars in Israel. And He's hearing the story from this Ashkenazi Jew of what the experience was like for his I think, father or grandfather, I don't remember, 
1914. You see, it says, Stav, Tuf, Reish, Ayin, Hey, in the fall of, I think, 1914, 1915, somewhere around there. Um, he's describing what it was like to be in the army. Right, I was in the field of battle. It had no real military purpose for him. He's a Jew, right? Did he care if the if the the Bolsheviks won or if the the emperor won or they're fighting for what they're fighting for? It didn't really seem to be relevant to him. So already you get a taste already of the lack of purpose or meaning. You're risking your life for something you don't necessarily even believe in. Um, and we went out to attack uh, in darkness to the dark. It's totally dark. And we're going out into the field, driving, fighting in this World War One, And we fell into, I think, into those, those like canals, those uh, ditches that people had dug um, of the soldiers who we're fighting against. And I jumped from my place. I jumped from my place. And like a lion, and, and I roared like a lion, like a mighty roar, as they taught me in my training. When I went to the army, they told you, you should scream as much as you can. Scream like a, whenever you go and attack and you take your bayonet and you're going to thrust it into the enemy, you should scream like a, scream like a lion. And I did that. Tens of times I was screaming and I was taking my uh, bayonet and, and shoving it at other people. And I, I was a good soldier. You know, I took my bayonet and I would always scream out partly to encourage me and partly to strike fear in the soldier who I was going to be fighting against. So I jumped and I cried and I roared like a lion. And I roared like a lion and I jumped in front of the person who I was about to pounce upon, this soldier from the other the other side. That's what my my the person, my commander, told me I should do. I should try with all my strength to do this. And I was a good soldier. If you look just for a moment, for those of you who can read in Hebrew or follow along, becomes a little bit dramatic. Three lines up from the bottom, the first word is the word tov. Tov haiti. I was a good soldier. Avoili. Lochem I was a, I was a excellent fighter. And hakidon filech et libo. I took my bayonet and it sliced into the heart of the soldier shachayel shemuli balota shachar shachor. In this darkness, I was able to, even though I couldn't see anything, I was able to strike the soldier against who I was fighting against right straight into his heart with my bayonet. And the soldier falls down, you know, onto my, onto his sword. Nafal, and he falls by my feet and he lets out a cry. And what's the cry that he has? This soldier who I couldn't see on the other, the other side, his cry is, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkeinu, Hashem Echad. He killed a fellow Jew. Right, because there's Jews on all sides of these wars, and so the other soldier cries out, "Hashem, Hashem Echad," and I am in total despondency when I hear that, and I shake my entire body shakes. What have I done? What have I done? What sin have I engaged in? Tov haya, tov haya It would have 
been better for me to die right then and there to continue to live. My death would be better than my life. He is absolutely shaken and destroyed. And you hear in this, this literature of Chaim Sabato, what one of the great cruelties is, even more so than possibly dying for a cause that you don't believe in, killing for a cause you don't believe in, and killing someone like a fellow Jew. That's all these things are the experience of what it was like to serve in other armies. And I guess the what I would just like to impress upon in the last two sources, and the last little bit, is for most of Jewish history, our experience as an individual soldier in armies of other people was not a good one. It was dangerous for us. It was a threat to our religious free will. Uh, it was a threat to our lives. It was a threat to our own uh, ethical and moral sensibilities. We had no choice. And we often had to do terrible things. And returning to Israel provides an incredible tikkun, an incredible repair. The next source uh, quotes the very end. There is a famous line that Trumpador said when he was fighting. And he says, it's good to die in this country. Uh, that, that statement is famous, but it's misunderstood. He was not saying that it's good to die for one's country. He was not making that point. But what he was saying is, if one is going to go to war and one has to fight and one has to risk their lives, it's much better to do that for a cause you believe in, to defend people you love, and to do so when you're trying to build a society of your people in the land of Israel. That's what he, he meant to say. And the last source, the very bottom, again, this is from uh, Ashai Ignon, where he describes the importance of Kaddish of what each word in Kaddish is meant to do for the, the neshama, the soul of the person we say Kaddish for. And he says how beautiful and how important Kaddish is that we're saying. And then he goes on to point out and says, and it's a call the Homer, it's an all the more so. If it's meaningful to, to say Kaddish uh, for anyone, that for the Kedusha, the holiness that they held up in their lives, can you imagine how special it is for someone who gave up their life um, for the for the benefit and the protection and the saving the lives of his own people? The Kaddish that we say for them, and he says that we should all say Kaddish for any of the soldiers who die in fighting and trying to defend Israel, that they, in a sense, are trying to bring God's name into the world. Uh, they're, they're dying in their land, in the palace of, of God, and how it's a much more uh, powerful experience, and it's a transformative experience. And, and I think the nature of that transformative experience, I'll just give in just a few very quick examples, and then if anyone has questions, um, feel free or comments. The, the, the first thing I would say is, I described how, you know, life in the army, of, when for Jew in the diaspora, um, was, was a very negative thing, uh, just on the basic level of, Religiosity. Um, it's of course the exact opposite here uh, in in Israel. Um, the, the, there are pictures of soldiers who are learning dafyomi before they go out for the day. There are services. Uh, the soldiers, uh, you know, are are asking for. You know, we send the, the the home front is sending down food constantly, and we're making sandwiches, thousands of sandwiches, and we're sending gift baskets every week. 
Um, we have people who are baking halot and baking sweets, and we ask our kids to draw pictures, and then someone drives them down to the various soldiers uh, and the different bases, either in the south or the north. Um, and the number one thing that they ask for, uh, and it is uh, they're appreciative of all of that, but they ask for tzitzit, to have uh, tzitzit, army regulation tzitzit, which has to be on green, um, or even tefillin including from people who are not normally accustomed to wearing tefillin or tzitzit, but everyone wants to, to, to be connected in that way before they go in. And uh, there's a cute, there's a cute comment that uh, this one young woman made who's in the army as well. Her father said to her, says, you know, now that you're, everyone's been called up, you know, she was a religious girl. She said, he said, you know, there's probably a lot of very nice young eligible men, you know, in the army that you're hanging out with. Maybe you could find a nice, religious boy to uh to date while you're down there in the army getting ready to go into gaza and she says you know abba it's not so easy if you want me to you know find a religious boy i have no idea who's religious anymore everyone all the guys are wearing tt all the guys are wearing tefillin um not just the religious uh and so you see if you want to observe uh, the commandments in the jewish army you definitely can do so um, next week, we're going to talk about Rav Gorin and his uh, philosophical underpinnings of what he felt an ideal army should look like and act. But I, I'll just tell you one story about Rav Gorin now that uh, that I, I've always enjoyed. Uh, Rav Gorin was the chief rabbi of the army. He ultimately goes on to become the chief rabbi of the state of Israel. And um, he got into a fight with Ariel Sharon. Um, our, he says that he wants the entire army to be kosher. And Ariel Sharon says, listen, I don't mind if there are units with religious soldiers in them. Uh, if they want to become kosher, that's fine. And we'll support that. But, you know, it's too complicated, not just that it's expensive to keep the kitchen separate. and every, It's too complicated to make every unit um, kosher. Only if there's religious Jews will make it kosher. He says, in my unit, he was in the paratroopers, I have no religious soldiers. And since I don't have any religious soldiers, I'm not going to make my unit kosher. Not until I have my first religious soldier will I make my unit kosher. So Rav Gorin, um, because he was the chief rabbi, he actually had a fairly high rank. He said to Sharon, fine, I'm volunteering you have into your unit. And Sharon said, well, I'm only accepting you if you're really going to be in the unit. You have to jump out of the plane. So Rav Gorin, who was already an older man by then, uh, said, okay. And he jumped out of the plane as a paratrooper. Um, he ended up breaking his leg uh, at first jump. Uh, and in the hospital, Sharon came and visited him and says, okay, you proved your point. We'll make the entire the entire army kosher. Um, we'll hear more about Rav Gorin next week, but the the thing I want to emphasize there is that the army is in not only in no way a barrier uh, to greater Jewish connection and observance, it very often is a driver of that type of that type of outlook. Um, the other thing I, I would like to, to mention, or two things really, one, you know, the Chavetz Chaim was fighting for some type of, he said, you know, you're, you're leaving the army, uh, you know, you'll be doing something that's totally not not observant um, for 23 hours of the day. And then just remember, you try to do your best to keep whatever little bit of Kedusha you can. The army's point of view is everything can be Kodesh. And in fact, uh, soldiers, uh, when they are 
about to go out into the field on Shabbat, which they are permitted to do as a matter of saving lives, uh, they make a special prayer, Harei Ani, right? At this point in time, I'm about to go and do the mitzvah of defending and saving lives. And when they finish the, the service, and it's still Shabbat, they're supposed to make Havdalah. You know, the way we make Havdalah at the end of Shabbat, separating the Kodesh, the holy, to the whole, the profane. So if it's still Shabbat, they make a prayer, a bracha, Baruch HaMavdil, Ben Kodesh Kodesh. Right? Blessed is God, who separates the holy, meaning the holy of the work I just did in the army, to the Kodesh of now commemorating and celebrating Shabbat in its traditional form. That they both are of equal and great uh, Kedusha and holiness. And the last last story that I want to share with you is um, I mentioned to you my uh, great, 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 I can't remember the number exactly, grandfather, who was in the Russian army. And I, I was thinking about him when my son, I have two sons. I, I mentioned I have three girls who are army age. I have two younger sons. My son, Ellie, is 13. My son, BJ, Benjamin Jacob, is six. And I remember when my son, Ellie, was, was born uh, 13 years ago. And I will tell you, and I think it's not uncommon for Israeli fathers and mothers to feel this way. The second he was born, I started thinking right away, in 18 years, he's going to have to join the army. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, I see as my son has grown up, he's become a very strong kid. You know, he's very athletic. Um, he's tall. Uh, you know, I would have hoped maybe he would go into something like computers and sort of stay out of a dangerous field. But I see that already at this age, the kids want to engage in service. They want to take risks uh, for the benefit of fulfilling a role of protecting their families. Um, and he may go into a combat unit. And already at the as eight days at his bris, I was already concerned about that, I remember and I caught myself in the following sense, that I was thinking of this great-great-grandfather, Yisrael David Palestine, and I was thinking that when he had to take on a name, he chose Palestine. He was thinking about this land, the land of Israel. Um, and I was just thinking about what he would think if he had a great-great-great, or if he knew about his great-great-great-great-grandson, who would one day join the Jewish army, and what his, how much in disbelief, and I think joy, if that was an opportunity. He had to go into the Russian army for 25 years, fight for something he didn't believe in, fight for someone he didn't believe in, give up so many of things that were important to him. And if I were to tell him that you will have this relative one day who will be able to go into a Jewish army and and defend the Jewish people and to to do it in a way, as I'll explain next week, that I think is really quite Kodesh, quite holy, I think we would have broken down in tears at the exceptional opportunity that actually represented. Far from sort of being terrified by it, I think he would feel it a tremendous privilege. And I think people here, in fact, do feel that it is a, a, a tremendous privilege, a heavy burden. We're burying people, soldiers, every day. We wake up in the morning and there's another three or four soldiers that have been passed away. The funerals are taking place right around here. Just this evening, in fact, I wasn't there, but a friend of mine told me he waited in hours in line. That's another difference, certainly. Hours in line in order to go to the Shiva 
of a soldier in our neighborhood by the name of Kfir. Um, the city comes and sets up a tent for mourning because there's too many people to do in people's homes. And the line to 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 provide comfort uh, at the Shiva house wraps around the, the streets, wraps around the entire neighborhood. Not because people know, but they want to show and express honor and thanks and gratitude uh, to these people, these young men, young people who have really given their lives uh, and the ultimate sacrifice. And so you, you 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 feel that the weight at this shiva, by the way, I should point out, what my friend mentioned to me is one of the people who came out as he was going in was the father of um, a soldier who died last week, a principal of a high school by the name of Horowitz, uh, uh, Hershkowitz, um, who died last week. And the father was sitting shiva for his son. And what's the first act he does when he gets up from sitting Shiva? He goes to the Shiva of someone else. Um, so there's a heavy burden and it's a heavy weight, but it is, I think, also a privilege. And in the context of the uh, history of the Jewish people, it's actually a very fortunate and privilege, despite its heaviness. Anyway, we should all hear good news uh, uh, this week. Please, God, it should be a a, a time of of salvation uh, for all of us, for the hostages, for the soldiers, for all peoples in the land, uh, that we will be able to um, be safe, uh, eradicate evil, and all innocents should be able to be protected during this time. Um, I'm going to end here. If anyone has a comment, they should feel free to do so. Otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you next week. As I said, we will be talking about the development, and we'll look from a halakhic point of view, the development of the Jewish military ethic within an army, um, and the argument that took place, uh, and continue to take place, of what is really the ethical process to do so. Everyone should have a have a have a good week, and thanks for joining me again. Thank you so much, Rabbi Pear. That was uh, very powerful. And uh, as you mentioned, we'd love to open up the last few minutes if there are any questions or comments. Um, Yes. Hi, Doris. Did I see your hand raised? I'll try and be brief, which is difficult, I'm told, for me. Um, you've talked about uh, in the other world war, the other wars that we had to serve in what I would call foreign armies. And I can tell you from my own experience, not mine personally, but from my grandfather, we, we, we originally originate from Germany. And my grandfather was, of course, drafted in the First World War. And his biggest fear was he didn't want to kill anyone, but that he would kill a fellow Jew. So the story in the family, which I believe, is that he would go, he was whatever, ordinary infantry, and he would never aim at anyone. He'd just shoot into the air. And when I asked my father his son, uh, well, how could you do that? So my father sort of thought this was quite funny. He said, well, there's such a, so much going on. Who would know he's shooting in the air? Because his biggest fear was that he would shoot, shoot a French Jew. They were mm. fighting the French. Wouldn't matter who. The second one is my, my parents, by some amazing, I call it a miracle, but the help of people, got to South Africa 
in 36 and 37. They were stateless. The last ship that ever went to South Africa from Germany, I'm not going to go into that right now. And my father was drafted, a stateless Jew, drafted. And he went when they were, I don't know where they gathered, I don't know what that's called at the moment, to go to whatever, be enlisted, even though they were drafted. He went up to the second in charge. It was not General Smuts, whom people might have heard of, but the next one. And he went up. It was very unusual. Who would go to, who would dare go up to these generals? It was the Brits, of course, that they were fighting with. And he told him he's very grateful that he can be in South Africa and he's willing to do something. But if he's caught, he said, I've got a wife and a baby. And if I am caught, I will be killed immediately. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew with a wife and baby. I will do something, but absolutely cannot be sent overseas. And he was allowed to stay in South Africa in the Civil Guard or whatever, National Guard, doing some sort of well, quite important work, actually guarding the uh, oil tankers on the coast, uh, that wherever you store oil. So it's not just from earlier times in, in the other parts of uh, Europe, but from the last world war, my story. I just felt, I feel always I must tell it. Thank and I you. thank you for allowing me to. Th thank you for sharing it. It's You're absolutely right. Uh, we didn't even get to uh, World War II and Jewish involvement, which is significant. But uh, I, I love I love hearing these stories and how every you know everyone has a, a unique experience. And thank you for sharing. Thank you for your. It was very interesting. I'm glad I joined. Thank you so much. Uh, my grandfather also served in the Canadian Army in World War II. Mm. So I was thinking about him a lot during this uh, presentation as well. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, for, for leading this learning for us. And we look forward to the next session next week. Um, that will be on Wednesday at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. Um, and the link is in the chat. So hope you all can uh, join us for that as well. Um, so we will see you then. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.